you got your Bibles, uh, we're still in Matthew chapter 11, a powerful passage in Matthew 11 that shows us the heart of Christ for sinners just like you and me. This is a passage that started uh, with a question from John the Baptist asking if Jesus was the one that was to come or if they should continue to look and to search for the Messiah. John knew that if Jesus wasn't the one, that he would have to continue searching because his heart would remain empty. Jesus answered and said, John, go, go back and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. Uh, and then remind John that it's, he'd be blessed if he's not offended. He's not set back by me. And, um, and so this passage has kind of progressed. It's a continuation now uh, of the, the questions that John asked, but Jesus is now addressing the crowd. Uh, his, John's disciples have gone back to John. Jesus is addressing the crowd. And he gets to the passage that Thomas read for us this morning, the passage that deals with the, the heart of that generation, the, the mindset of the ones that Jesus was addressing. Um, and I just want to say that as I've spent a lot of time reviewing this and thinking through it this week, one of the things the Lord's taken me back to is to try to remember and to try to put myself in the place of the people of Jesus' day. We have a real advantage. We are 2,000 years past the cross. They were living in that day where Jesus was walking among them. The cross had not yet happened. The sacrifice had not yet come. They had been prepared for a couple thousand years that a Messiah was going to come. In fact, the, the, the final pages of the Old Testament promised that, that this prophet would come like Elijah, that he would prepare the way for the Lord, and then the Messiah would arrive on the scene. And the Jews, their hearts longed for that. They longed for the Messiah to come, especially after Rome had taken over and, and, and taken control of, of Israel. They longed for someone to come. They thought in their mind someone like Elijah who would have a showdown with the authorities and God would step in and fire would fall from heaven and, and God's people would be exonerated. That's what they hoped for. They hoped for somebody like Moses that would come in and would confront the Pharaoh of that day and say, let my people go. And he might say no, and, and, and this deliverer would keep pushing until finally one day the deliverer would lead them out from under the control of Rome. That's what they hoped for. And that wasn't just a hope that they dreamed up in their mind, but it was something that they had read the Old Testament, and, and their best understanding of the Old Testament led them to believe that. So I don't want you to think that these are just whacked-out people that are out there just dreaming up their own dreams, trying to do their own thing. They, they had dove into the Scriptures, and, and this was the best that they understood that was supposed to happen. And so now John has shown up on the scene, and John's been powerful. The crowds have gone out to John to listen to his message. They've, they've repented because they know the cycle. This, this, not, this is not new. But we, we talked about the acrostic of sword, S-W-O-R-D, that, that the people would fall into sin, that the wrath of God would come, uh, that, that God would send an oppressor, usually another nation, to conquer Israel and to drag the people away. And then the people would fall on their knees and they would repent. And God would hear their cry. And God would deliver them. And this cycle had repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And so they're in the middle of this cycle again in their minds. And, and, and they've drifted away. God's allowed Rome to oppress them. Now John's come and preached repentance. And the people have gone to the Jordan River and been baptized. Now it's time for the deliverer to come and to set us free from our oppressor. And that's what they thought. That was their interpretation. That's what they had seen and heard of in the past. And they assumed that God was going to do once again. 
And the Messiah would be a deliverer, but not a physical or a political deliverer. He would be a spiritual deliverer. Because the problem was their hearts never got fixed. That cycle repeated again and again and again in the Old Testament because their hearts never changed. They, they repented. They said they were sorry. They tried to do better. But they always slipped back into the old ways. They always went back to their old habits. And so here's this people that are there, and, and, and they're looking for the Messiah. They've got in their mind this picture of what he's going to look like. He's going to be charismatic. He's going to rally the troops. He's going to amass an army. He's going to threaten Rome, and Rome's going to back down somehow, and, and Israel's going to be free again. That's what they had in their mind. Not just because that was their dream, but because that's the way they had interpreted Scripture. So to get a feel for where they are, think about this. Think about what if somebody showed up on the scene today and said, I know you've read the Old Testament, I know you've read the New Testament, but there's one more testament to come. There's something new that God's about to do in our day. And I know that in the Old Testament you, you read that the Deliverer come. In the New Testament you read that Jesus came. But, but now... Remember in Revelation, that little passage that said that he's going to come riding on the white horse with a sword in his mouth and he's going to slay the wicked? What if somebody showed up on the scene today and said, I am that guy? You and I would go, whoa, 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 whoa. that's not the way I understand Scripture to read. That's not the way I, I see this thing playing out. That's not exactly what I, I think they were, were meaning in the book of Revelation. But what if somebody showed up today and said, I am the fulfillment of what you've read in the book of Revelation? And you go, I know Revelation's kind of weird and I don't understand all the details, but would you follow that guy or would you not? And that's really where these people were in Jesus' day. We look back and go, hey, there's a whole New Testament they didn't even know about. It hadn't been written. It hadn't been given to them. And so they are there. And, and here's Jesus. He is, the, he is beginning a new kingdom. He's beginning a new work. And, and these people are trying to, to, to put together what Jesus is saying and what he's doing and what he's like with what they had experienced in the Old Testament. And for some reason, they don't see those two things lining up. They see them clashing more than, 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 than fitting together. And so they're hesitant, and, and they're not sure that they want to follow Jesus. They're not sure that they want to buy into to what's going on, because when John came preaching, they got excited. And then Jesus shows up, and he's not interested in military might. Jesus shows up, and, and, and they're ready to make him their king. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to be your earthly king. And they say, well, let's go conquer Rome. And Jesus says, let's love our enemies. And Jesus says things like, I am meek. And I am lowly. And they're like, wait a minute. That doesn't fit our image of who this Messiah is. And so here in this passage, Jesus is, is addressing these, these misconceptions. He's trying to bring them back into line with, with what he really is and show them how that he is the, the, the fulfillment of that. But the problem is their hearts are hard. They're, Jesus is going to, to uncover some unbelief in their life. They, they don't believe that Jesus is really who he says he is. And so there's this passage, and it's, it's kind of a neat little passage when you begin to understand the, the story behind it. But in, in verse 16, uh, Jesus says, but to w- what shall I compare this generation? So in other words, he's not talking about those that are really following him, but this unbelieving generation that's out there that's skeptical of Jesus, is not sure he's really who he's claiming to be. He says, what, what should I compare that gen- this generation to? And Jesus used an analogy that every single person in his audience would have been very, very familiar with. 
the parents would come into the marketplace and there were it was it was these just booth after booth after booth if you wanted something from this booth that sells the meat and this one would sell the pasta and this one would sell something else and that one had household goods and it was like a shopping center just this marketplace where people would come in and set up their booths and parents would bring their children with them to the marketplace and so whether the moms and dads were just shopping in the booth or whether they were managing a booth and they were selling their goods in the booth they would bring their children with them and it was nothing in that day and time for the kids to, to, to get out together in the, in the marketplace and to gather up and to begin to play some games together while mom and dad ran their booth or while mom and dad shopped at those booths. And so the kids would play in the marketplace. And there was two big events in Jewish life. The, the biggest events of all in, in a Jewish culture were weddings and funerals. And at weddings, man, they played joyful music, they danced, it was a week-long celebration. We've talked about Jewish weddings before, and how grand these things were, huge. And that was a big deal, and that made a big impression on kids when they would go to a wedding and see all the joy and all the celebration, and it was the most joyful thing. And then also, funerals in, in, in Jewish life were huge events, Funerals, the, the, the louder you would wail and the more that you would mourn, the more it expressed how much you missed the person that was deceased. Even to the point that when somebody died, they would hire professional mourners to come in and to weep and to wail and to make all the noises that you could make to show how, how heartbroken the family was at, at their loss. And so these two things, these two events, these weddings and these funerals were big deals. And, and kids in the marketplace would play, let's play wedding and let's play funeral. And that's what they would do in the marketplace. Well, mom and dad are shopping and selling, then the kids are playing these games. And so what would happen is the kids would get together and, and one of them may have a little you know, wooden flute and they would start to play some, some joyful music and all the kids would get up and dance like they're at a wedding. Let's play wedding. And they would dance, 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 and they would play. And you had one little ringleader that would play the music, and everybody else would dance and celebrate like they're at a wedding. We have kids today, so let's play school. You ever done that? I'll be the teacher. You, let's play school. Okay, now here's what we're going to do. And they run the classroom. And some of them actually become teachers. Uh, but but we, we do this where, where we see these kids. Let's play school. And we do that. Well, back then they played wedding. Let's play wedding. And the kids would dance in the street, and the parents would go, Oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that sweet? And they get tired of playing wedding, and they go, well, let's play funeral. Well, how do you do that? Well, we sing a dirge, this, this slow song, and it's a sad song, and we sing this song, and everybody just begins to cry and scream, and, and they, they do what they saw their parents do at, at these funerals. And, and it, it had to be kind of hilarious that you would go from playing one joyful song to playing a sad song, and the kids could switch moods just like that, and they could just, just impersonate their parents. And do those things. And that's what the kids would do in the street. And Jesus says, this generation is like these, these kids in the marketplace. And they're calling out to their playmates. But notice what they say. We played the flute for you. There's that joyful music. But you wouldn't dance. We sang a dirge for you, that slow, sad song for you. And you wouldn't even mourn. Jesus says, that's what this generation's like. What, what's Jesus saying? They don't get sad, they don't get happy? Is it, no, that's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. The, 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 they said that we would play, the, the, the ringleader would play the flute in the, in, the, in the wedding music. And there's this group of kids over here, and they would just sit down and go, I don't like that song. I'm not, I'm not in a happy mood. I'm not going to play your game. 
Oh, you're not happy today. Okay, well, let's play the funeral song then. And the ringleader would switch songs and say, well, let's, let's, he, Johnny's sad today. Let's do the funeral song. And Johnny can participate. And Johnny goes, I don't like the funeral song either. I'm, I'm not going to play that song either. And, 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 and what Jesus is saying is, here's a group of people who don't want to follow the leader. That's what he's saying. They don't want to follow the leader. And they're complaining that it's because of the song. I don't like that happy song. I don't like that sad song. And the real problem is not the song. The real problem is their heart. They don't want to follow. They want to lead. That's the problem. And Jesus says that's the, that's the problem with this generation. Is, is they've got their mind made up of what the Messiah is going to be. And they want a God that they can control. Not a God that can control them. They want to be the leader. They don't want to be the follower. And Jesus says that's what this generation is like. It's like these children that are sitting in the marketplace. They're gathered with their friends. One stands up and plays a happy song. And they, they fold their arms. Going, not going to do it. I, I don't like that song. Okay, let's switch and do a sad song. If you're sad today, we'll play a sad song. I don't like sad song either. The song wasn't the problem. The problem was, was not that. The problem was not the song. The problem was their heart. And Jesus is trying to show them that. You say, how does he show them that the problem was their heart? Look at the next verse. He says, John came neither eating nor drinking. John took that Nazarite vow that said he couldn't, he couldn't partake of any kind of grape products or any kind of uh, uh, alcoholic beverage or anything like that. And, and John ate honey and locusts in the wilderness. And, and, and we already know John's lifestyle was, was one of being outside the city instead of being one that was inside the city. So John was not, a real, was not known to be a real people person. He was not known to be real friendly. He was, not known, he was, the, he was that fire-breathing prophet that screamed and hollered about repentance and get your heart right because the Messiah is coming. And, 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 and John didn't eat or drink uh, what everybody else would eat or drink. Now, he did eat and he did drink, but he just didn't, he didn't partake of the stuff that everybody else would partake of. And he says, so John came neither eating or drinking. And what they say about John? Well, that boy's got a demon. Anybody that lived like that, he's got to have a demon. Something wrong with that boy. That's the funeral. Okay, we're making a connection here. Wedding song, funeral song. John's the funeral song. We don't like it. I don't like that boy. Why hadn't you repented? Because I don't like the preacher. Why aren't you walking with God? Because I don't like the way he says that. He ain't friendly. He didn't shake my hand. You know, it's, it's always the excuse of, of why we're not doing what we ought to be doing for Jesus. And, and here's the people doing that with, with John. Jesus says, okay, let me give you two extremes. We got a wedding, we got a funeral. We got John and we got Jesus. John came neither eating nor drinking. He had a strict diet. He, he lived outside in the wilderness, not in the city, hobnobbing with everybody else. He wasn't like the Pharisees who wore the long flowing gowns and robes and the tassels and all the stuff and stood on the street corner praying so everybody could hear them, that rattled their money as they threw it in the offering plate so everybody would know how much money they put in the plate. They, they didn't do all the things for show. John was, John was focused and John was serious. John was a little stern. And so instead of listening to John, they labeled John. He's got a demon. Isn't it funny how when we don't like something that somebody says, we label them? 
We, we live in a world right now that has mastered the art of labeling people. You don't like them, you don't agree with them, label them, discount them, trash them. That's what they did with John the Baptist. That boy's got a demon. I, I ain't going out to the river and getting baptized. That boy's got a demon. And they ignored John's message. They didn't want to follow John's instructions. Instead, they just, instead of listening, they labeled John. Jesus says, and then the Son of Man, talking about himself. Son of Man comes, and he's a lot different. John wouldn't eat and drink. Son of Man comes eating and drinking. John was kind of pulled back away from people, kept his distance, wasn't a real people person, and they label him. Jesus comes, and what does Jesus do? He's a people's person. He, he, he's got this stuff down. Jesus loves being with people. Now, not the people they thought he ought to be with, right? Pharisees thought he ought to be up here with us. He ought to, you know, the Messiah is going to come and pat us on the back and put his arm around us and tell the world how great we are. And Jesus went and hung out with tax collectors and sinners. So we, we've got these guys making excuses for why they won't follow John, why they won't follow Jesus. Well, John's too strict. Jesus is too soft. John's stern. Jesus is too kind. John doesn't eat and drink. Jesus eat and drink anything. John's not a people person. Jesus will hang out with anybody. You see, the problem is not the person. The problem is their heart. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. You rejected John not because you don't, not because something's wrong with John, but because something's wrong with you. You say John's got a demon, you label him. Son of man comes eating and drinking, and what do you say about him? Look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. That guy, he goes there, somebody opens their house and says, come eat. Jesus says, all right, what time? Jesus goes to a wedding. They run out of wine. What does Jesus do? Let's make some more. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. And you know what's worse than that? He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. So, why are they so upset with what Jesus is doing? Why are they labeling Jesus and labeling John? Because that's the way you get to discount people. If I can label you as a heretic, or I can label you as a demonic, or I can label you as a glutton and a drunkard, then I don't have to listen to you. We do this in politics all the time, but we also do it in church. Well, that person over there, he's liberal. That person over here, he's a, he's a this or he's a that. And we label people so that we don't have to listen to them. We label them so that we don't have to, to wrestle with what they say and to measure ourselves up. We label them because we don't like what they're saying. And Jesus says, look, there's some truth that I'm going to reveal to you that you're not going to like. And, and, and in fact, it's already happening. You're already starting to question if I could really be the Messiah because I hang out with people that are dirty and sinful. Tax collectors who are considered traitors. Jesus says, you're missing it. The problem is not with me or with John. The problem resides within you. The problem is there. And you don't want to see it. And you don't want to come face to face with it. 
And here's the reason. Because if what Jesus was saying was true, if Jesus really was God in the flesh, that changes everything. If Jesus is God in the flesh, then they lose all authority. They lose all power. They lose every right to claim their own rights because he is God and they are not. Everything changes. I lose all authority over my life. Listen, guys, if Jesus is who he says he is in the New Testament, you and I have one option, and that is to bow at his feet and to worship him forever. To give him full authority over all of us. If what the New Testament reveals is true, that we were sinners who could not save ourselves and God came in the flesh to do it for us, then we owe him everything. And so instead of some people submitting to that kind of a God, they just discount him and label him and say, I don't like that kind of God. You know, Old Testament is too harsh. New Testament is too, too, too soft. You know, Old Testament was, was this harsh law that, that nobody could keep. And this New Testament is this grace stuff that nobody can believe. And so we, we, got the, we got the wedding and the funeral, the wedding and the funeral, back and forth and back and forth. And Jesus says, stop it. It's not the music. It's not the song. It's not the person. The problem is right here. We resist. We resist the thought that we should submit ourselves to somebody. We are a do-it-yourself kind of people. We Just show me a YouTube video and I can do this. And we can't. Unbelief. Unbelief is not just the lack of proof. Jesus had given them proof after proof after proof. Tim Keller says unbelief is not the lack of proof. It is the presence of something even more powerful. It's a mind that's made up that believes it knows it all and refuses to consider anything else. That's where the Jews were that day. We've got our mind made up of what the Messiah is going to look like, what he's going to do, who he's going to hang out with, what he's going to eat, what he's going to drink, how he's going to dress, how he's going to set us free. We've got our mind made up. And God, if you don't fit in our little box, then you're not the right God. And that's where they were. I read a story about a man. It's called a dead man walking story. It was this man who, who had a friend, his best friend. And one day the, the man shows up and he says to his best friend, he says, hey, I've, I've figured out something about myself today. What's that? He says, I figured out that I'm dead. His friend looks at him and says, what do you mean you figured out you were dead? I'm, I'm, I'm dead. I, I know you think I'm alive, but I, I'm dead. I figured it out. I am, I am dead. And the guy goes, man, you can't be dead. You're talking to me. You're alive. I can touch you. I can feel you. You're not dead. You're alive. I'm, I'm dead. I'm convinced that I'm dead. And the guy says, well, if I can show you proof that you're not dead, then would you believe you're not dead? Oh, yeah, yeah, if you can prove to me, but good luck, because I'm convinced that I'm dead. And so the guy goes and gets the, the leading journals of, of the medical association and pulls it out and says, hey, look, here, here, all the leading experts, all the scientists, all the doctors, all the medical experts say right here that dead men don't talk, they don't eat, they don't breathe, they don't do any, they don't bleed. And he shows him in all these journals that the, every, every scientist, every medical expert agrees that dead men don't bleed. So, so give me your hand. 
So the friend who thinks he's dead holds out his hand. His friend takes a knife and slices the, the palm of his hand and blood begins to pour out. He says, there's your proof. The experts say dead men don't bleed. You're bleeding. Therefore, you're alive. And the friend goes, so what do you think about that? He goes, proves my point. He says, proves your point? What? The experts are wrong. The experts are wrong. Dead men do bleed. That's the way the Jews are. We know what the Messiah is going to look like. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the Messiah. Here's the Messiah. Here's proof. And they go, see, it's proof you're not the Messiah. Because we know what the Messiah is going to look like. And that's unbelief. When you think you know something and you will not even consider anything else. When you think you've got something figured out and then something outside your box pops up and there's proof to back it up and you still say, no, no, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to buy it. Why? Because I've got my mind made up. And that's what these people were doing. They, they didn't want to follow a leader because they had in their mind what that leader's going to look like and Jesus didn't fit their profile. Unbelief is not just the lack of proof. It's the presence of something else, the presence of something that says, I know better. You see, every time we sin, we are demonstrating unbelief at one level or another. Scripture says, don't do this, or or you'll suffer for it. And you go, somebody else may suffer for that, but I can do that and get away with it. Don't do this, or, or it will hurt your relationships. It may hurt other people's relationships, but I'm smooth enough that I can work around that. I'm, I'm, I'm sly enough that nobody will know. I'm, 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 you know, that, I don't believe that. Sin is unbelief. I don't believe that I'm as bad as the Bible says I am. I don't believe that, that I really, you know, I don't believe that, that, that there's nothing good in me. I just think there's a few bad things in me. Unbelief is, despite the proof that Scripture gives us, that we don't believe that and we deny that. And there's something inside of each of us that resists or fears or even hates the message of Christ. We recoil at the thought that there's something that we cannot do for ourselves. Something that we are totally dependent upon somebody else to do for us. So we work a little harder we try a little bit better to clean up our lives and to, to get better. And so what I'll do is I'll get as close to heaven as I can and let Jesus kind of push me over the edge. And, and that's the way that we live. And Jesus says, that's not the Messiah. That's not it. And these guys had this image of who the Messiah was going to be. And, and, and when Jesus shows up and he's something else, they're like, we're not going to follow you. I don't like your tune. I don't like your song. And Jesus said, it's not the song. It's your heart. It's your heart. They wanted a Messiah that would come and rescue them, but not a Messiah that would come and change them. They, they wanted a Messiah that would set them free from Rome, but not set them free from their sin. They wanted a Messiah that would amaze them, but not challenge them. Now listen, next week we're going to get into this idea of amazement. It's not enough to be amazed by God's grace. We'll talk about that next week. But Jesus is, is, is here talking to these people, and this is their idea. We want you to amaze us. We want you to do miracles. We want you to do signs and wonders and do all these things that we want you to do. Just don't challenge us and don't change us. Don't make us different. We want a God that can fit in our box. That's what we're after. Now, here's 
the problem. I know it's easy to be harsh on these, these folks. But guys, we, we've got to understand. We get to look back on all this. There is not one Jew alive in Jesus' day that could imagine that God would come himself. That God would show up in the flesh. That hadn't hit anybody's radar. They're thinking maybe another prophet, maybe another Elijah, maybe another Moses, maybe another deliverer. But not God himself. Nobody could, nobody could have even envisioned the incarnation. The fact that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. That had not hit anybody's radar. Now for those of us that grew up in the church, and we've heard this message all of our life. We go, okay, yeah, okay, Jesus is God's son. He came in the flesh. Okay, no big deal. That hadn't hit the radar in Jesus' day. No one could imagine that, that, they would do, that, that God would do that. No one could think that God would come himself to rescue his people. The Old Testament had talked about this Messiah coming in, in judgment of sin. But they never would have dreamed that the Messiah would come and stand and receive the judgment upon himself. They saw him coming. This is, this is a picture of the Messiah. They saw the Messiah coming and doing this at people. Not coming and doing this. They, they, they pictured the Messiah with a pointing finger. Not with open arms. And, and Jesus coming just threw them for a loop. Because it's not anything like they had imagined. When, when they came... When Jesus came, they couldn't imagine a Messiah that was coming just to deal with their sin. They figured he's going to come and set them free so they could be rich and prosperous and enjoy their, their homeland again. And when Jesus showed up, the, the real problem, and this is, this is a problem that we still face today. The problem was that they would say, man, I can't believe how great this Messiah is. They didn't say, I can't believe. They said, I won't believe. I've got my mind made up. Here's my box. And if I can't stuff him in the box, and if he won't fit, then he's not my Messiah. So it's not that they were so amazed and said, man, I can't believe this. It's too good to be true. It's that they said, I won't believe this. Because it can't be true. It can't be true because it doesn't fit my box. It doesn't fit my image of what I think it ought to be. But let me ask you this morning, what if? What if our idea of the Messiah, what if our idea of God the Father is off? What, what if God really does come to us in our sin? I've heard people say before, oh, God can't look upon sin. God can't, God can't look upon sin. He's too holy. If that's the truth then every one of us is in trouble. Right? If God can't look on sin, then God can't look on me. And God can't look on you. And, and, and God can't come to you in your time of need because you're sinful, if that's true. But what if God really does come to us in our sin? While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us despite our unworthiness. He's not repelled by the stench of our sin. 
What if Jesus really did enjoy hanging out with tax collectors and sinners who were honest about their sin, who were aware of their stench? What if it was true that Jesus was the great physician who came not for those who thought they were well, but for those who knew that they weren't? That would explain why Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. It would explain why when somebody opened up their house and said, hey, would you come have a meal with me? Let's talk some more about these claims that you're laying out there. Jesus would say, tell me what time and I'll be there. What if Jesus came to to be with the sick and the helpless and the hopeless? Those who knew that they needed him. Those who were tired of of trying and falling flat on their face because they just didn't have what it took to get across the finish line. What if he came for those who couldn't measure up to man's expectations, but somehow fit exactly who Jesus came to rescue? What if Jesus really did come for those who were weary and heavy laden, as we'll look at two weeks from today? What if? What if God is really greater than our minds have ever fully conceived? What if he's too big to fit in my box? You see, it scares me more to think that God could fit in my box than to think that God couldn't. If God will fit in your box, your box, your God is way too small. It ought to scare you more that he won't fit in your box than the fact that, or it ought to scare you more that he would fit in your box than than it would if he wouldn't. Jesus says to these people, you, you've closed your minds. You've, you, you, you've decided that you ought to be the one calling the shots. You, you say you want a God and that you'll follow a God if. And any time we say, I will follow you, Lord, if, he's not Lord. Just those two letters, if, prove that he's not already Lord. I'll follow you if you give me what I want. I'll follow you if I can hang on to my popularity. I will follow you if there's no bumpy roads and no, no trials and no tribulations, no stress, no nothing. That, that, you know, if it's, everything's just going to be perfect, I'll follow you in that, in that. In fact, I'll follow you if you'll let me set the rules. Then he's not Lord and he's not God. What if Jesus really does love sinners enough that he would leave heaven to come and die in our place. You see, the heart of Matthew 11 is Jesus' call to come. That's where this chapter is going to end. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus calls us to come, but some people still live in disbelief, in unbelief. They live in such a way that they don't They don't experience what God has for them because their hearts still can't believe. As I thought about unbelief, I thought about the story of the dad who brought his son to the disciples. And the boy had a demon and and was in trouble and in distress. And the disciples tried to cast out the demon and couldn't cast him out. And Jesus coming down off the mountain of transfiguration and, and sees the crowd all stirred up and asks what's going on. 
And the father says, hey, I brought my son to you and asked him to cast out the demon. And they couldn't cast out the demon. The story's in Mark chapter 9. And in, in Mark chapter 9, it's, it's a story of, of where Jesus looks at the generation and says, oh, you faithless generation. You know, how long am I going to be with you? And, and the dad brings a boy to, to Jesus. And um, in verse 21, it says, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Because the boy's rolling around the ground, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus said, how long has this been happening to him? Now, Jesus didn't ask that because he didn't know. He's asking that to establish the fact that this has been going on for a while. The dad says, well, it's been going on from childhood. He's often cast himself into the fire and into water to destroy himself. And the dad looks at Jesus and says this, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible, Jesus says, for one who believes. So here's the father saying, look, your disciples couldn't do this. If, if you could, would you? And Jesus said, if? If? There's no doubt that I can. I, I can. All things are possible for those that believe. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. But help my unbelief. I think we're a lot like that father, or at least we ought to be. We believe that Jesus is God's son. We may even believe that we can't save ourselves, that we need God's grace to help us to do that. But within every one of us gathered here or watching online, inside of every one of us, there's still some unbelief. This, this man had heard what Jesus could do. That's why he brought his son. He, 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 he had great hope that Jesus could do something for his son. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I think the wisest thing for us to do sometimes is to say to Jesus, I got my arms wrapped around some of this, Jesus, but I know there's still parts of it that I'm, I'm not getting. Parts of it that I'm not understanding or parts of it that I'm still resisting, parts of it that I'm still pushing back on. I know you say this, but I want to do that. I know you say I should respond this way, but man, I want to give them that. And when you say to Jesus, I believe, but I still need help with that unbelief that resides deep within me. I still need help to, to know that I need you for every moment of every day. I know that I need you every time I've got to respond to somebody that criticizes me or somebody that hurts me or somebody that, that attacks me. I need you. I need you to know how to love my spouse. I need you to teach me how to love my kids. I need you to show me how to parent in a way that's going to produce the fruit that you want in my child. I need to be that coworker. I, I need you to show me how to go to work and to put up with what I put up with every day at work and not forfeit my Christian testimony. I believe, but man, I need help with the unbelief that's still there. That sin that I still wrestle with is unbelief. I don't believe that, 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 that you say it's, it, it, I don't think it's as bad as you say it is. I don't think it's going to hurt me the way, I, I still wrestle with unbelief or I wouldn't be wrestling with sin. 
Jesus says to the kids of that day, he says that you're like kids or to the generation of that day. You're like those kids in the marketplace that just fold their arms and say, I, I don't want to follow. If I can't lead, then I'm not going to play. Because it's not just them and it's not just us. Do you realize that the disciples in their final moments with Jesus, some of them still did not believe? If you got your Bible, look in Matthew 28, right at the end, right before the Great Commission. Right before Jesus says, go ye therefore into all the world, make disciples. Look at what it says in, in Matthew 28, verse 16. It says, now the 11, this is after the resurrection. Okay, let me set the stage. This is after the resurrection. Jesus has appeared to more than 500. He's appeared upon multiple accounts. He's walked through the walls of doors. He's ate fish with the disciples. He said, hey, put your hands and fingers in my, in my palm of my hand and my side. He's, they've hugged him. They've touched him. They've been with him. They've walked on the road to Emmaus with him. They have seen Jesus in his post-resurrection body. They've seen him, and they have fellowship with him. They've eaten with him. And now he's about to depart and go to the Father. This is the last thing he does before he leaves. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But, what? Some doubted. Was their problem with the proof that Jesus had given them? The problem wasn't with the proof. The problem was still right here in their heart. Some worshiped, some got it, but others still doubted. So when we wrestle as this father that we just read about did, where he says, I believe, but help my unbelief, we are in good company. Because here's the disciples who say one minute, Lord, I believe, and the next minute they're still doubting. There's, there's this wrestling that goes on inside of us. There's these things that, that Scripture calls us to do, and, and, and we recoil at it, and we think, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live that way. I don't, I don't want to get walked on. I don't want to get crucified. And Jesus calls us to do something, but we are like a drowning man. And we're in the water and we're drowning and we're going down. And, and, and somebody's trying to throw us a life preserver. And we think in our minds, why would I wrap something around my neck when I'm drowning anyway? Not realizing that the life preserver that they're throwing us is the very thing that will keep us afloat and save our lives. Why would I want something else wrapped around me? I'm already heavy enough and I'm already sinking. And so Jesus throws a life preserver. He, he offers us grace. He offers us eternal life. And some people say, I don't need that. I don't need more rules. I don't need more religion. I don't need more. And they reject the, the, the very thing that Jesus gave to save our lives because they don't understand what he's offering. They don't understand what he gives us. I think inside of every one of us, unless you're just some kind of a superstar, there still resides a little bit of doubt, a little bit of unbelief. That temptation comes, and we go. I know Jesus says it's wrong. Man, it feels so good. And at that moment, our belief is tested. Am I going to believe Jesus and follow him and obey him? Or am I going to say, I think I know best right now. I think my plan will 
provide me more satisfaction than Jesus' plan. I think maybe my idea would work out better than his idea. And in that moment, our unbelief surfaces. And we've got to choose whether we're going to believe or unbelieve. Whether we're going to follow or whether we're going to be like these kids in the marketplace that go, nah, I don't like what, what you said there, Jesus. I'm not going to do it. And Jesus says, okay, let's just get it, let's get it straight. The problem is not with what I said. The problem is not with the truth. The problem resides in your heart. And truth exposes what resides in our heart. And so Jesus calls us. In this final part of this passage, Jesus calls us, to, and he reminds us of this, that, that he says that wisdom is proven uh, or is justified by her deeds. Other translations say by her children. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you're not ready to follow me now, the, the proof is in the pudding. You're, you're going to see it. You're going to see how this truth transforms my disciples. You're going to see how it transforms other people. You're going to see how the truth and following the truth works out best in the end. Just don't wait too long. There's nothing wrong with wisdom. There's nothing wrong with the truth. It's going to stand the test of time. And it will prove to be true over time. This, this word of God right here has stood the test of time and will continue to stand the test of time through all generations. The problem is not with God's word. Some people want to say, oh, it's outdated. Oh, it's archaic. Oh, it was written to a different generation at a different time. We need to update it and make it sound different. We need to take out some of these harsh things that they say and we need to substitute it with something a little more, you know, PC. And, and we just need to change this because this is the problem. And Jesus says, this is not the problem. This is the problem. And we need to bring this in line with this. Or one day we'll wake up and realize we were a fool. When Jesus personifies wisdom right here in this verse, the only other place in Scripture that's really done a lot is in Proverbs. And it, and it compares the, 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 the woman of wisdom with the harlot and the prostitute of destruction. And Jesus says, there's a difference. So we can bring this in line with this. But don't ever try to bring this in line with your heart. Get rid of the box and let God be God. If your idea of who God is and what he's like has been misshapen by a parent who was abusive or a pastor who got out of line or somebody who messed up and let you down or a Christian friend that attacked you and hurt you and you thought, how can a Christian do that? You've got to get beyond that box and let God be God. And if you don't, there's a consequence that comes. There's a, there's a, a payday that's coming. Jesus says, wisdom will be justified. It will be proven right by her deeds or by her children. Let the truth take root. Bring your heart in line with God's word. And, and let those preconceived ideas of who he is and how he works, let those things be replaced by the truth that's revealed in Scripture. And when that happens, then you and I can walk with God in intimacy and in deep fellowship. And that's what God calls us to. Listen, he's fixing to wind up this passage, okay? The next two Sundays, two more messages in this passage. But Jesus is, is building a climax to say, look, the idea that you had of what the Messiah was going to be was, was completely false. And unless you're willing to set that aside and see me as I really am, then you're never going to come to me and find peace and rest for your soul. Don't try to put Jesus in your box. Let Jesus be Jesus. 
and you adjust your life to him. Let's pray.